The reading for this morning comes from Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. God, let us pray together. Our Father and our God, we ask that this morning um, you would give us an ability to hear you through your word. No one needs to hear from me in this space. Um, I have nothing to offer but you. You have the words of life. And I pray that you would uh, soften our hearts to be attentive to what you have to say to us. It's important, and it tells us about Jesus, and we ask that we would encounter him, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Before we look at this, I I, want to share with you, I listened to an amazing sermon on this passage by a friend of mine, Ray Cortez in Florida, and I'm like really channeling him this week because as I was running and listening, I was like, this is amazing. And I got all these nuggets from Ray, and I want to pass them out and share those with you this morning as we look at this passage. But just want to send a hat tip to Ray Cortez. Um, But here's what we're doing. We're studying Paul's letter to the Romans here. And here, Paul is unpacking for us what the gospel is. He's telling these early Christians that are living in Rome, and think about it, it's the center of the most powerful empire in the known world. That they, these Christians, have absolutely no need to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And you have to remember in this community, you probably had in this nascent church, some non-Jews who have come to believe in Jesus as the savior of the world. Men and women who have lived secular lives just as citizens of Rome. A life without knowledge of God. They lived uh, guilty of things like sexual sin, greed, murder. They were haters of God. But now they have been forgiven, redeemed, and welcomed into the family of God. And you also have in that church Jewish Christians. Those who have known God's law all their lives, they've tried their best to follow the Ten Commandments and the Scriptures, and they realize along the way they have no hope of salvation apart from putting their faith in Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. And Paul is wanting this church to understand something, that the problem with the human race for everyone 
is this thing called sin. And in this passage that was just read, we are given a summary statement of this biblical idea of sin. And it's telling us to think about it this way. As you read this passage, we're supposed to be able to say, wait, this is us. Do you begin to see yourself in this passage? Because when you begin to see yourself accurately, when you begin to see yourself as the Bible describes us and our condition, we are in the place to be able to connect to Jesus in a new and fresh way. You know, in Mark chapter 2, our Lord Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not called, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, if you want to experience the gospel, the power of God, we need to pay attention to this passage. So this morning, stick with me here, but I think the first thing you want to notice about this is Paul is laying out for us the universality of sin. And look at verses 9 and 10 again. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. I mean, it's a remarkable thing that Paul is trying to say. That Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And Jews cannot think of themselves any better. And this is the culmination of the argument he's been making since the middle of chapter 1. And remember who he's talking to. He's talking about all manners of unrighteousness among the uh, Gentile Christians here. And then in chapter 2, what did we begin to see? We saw that even the religious, those who would say they are followers of God... They were not righteous either. And he's saying here, everyone, everyone together is under sin. He's saying there is no difference. What does that mean that we're under sin? If you go to the end of the passage that was read in verse 19, the second half of it, it says, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world is held accountable. What does that mean? The world is held accountable. And that Greek word is actually answerable. It's a judicial world word where the whole world is liable for judgment, for punishment. And what he is saying is no matter who you are, no matter whether you've lived a life of compassion, philanthropy, or dedicated yourself to public service, Or if you've lived a life of cruelty, selfishness, and exploitation, we're all lost. We all deserve the exact same thing, the judgment of God. That's what Paul is saying. Look, I know some of you are saying, well, how is that that possible? You know, when we looked at Romans 2 last week, Paul is saying, you know, even among the religious You had people who were using their religiosity as a way to make themselves look good, not to honor God, but it was all about them. Do you remember the little parable we read from Luke 18 last week where Jesus tells the story of two men who went up to pray? 
I think it's worth repeating again because those guys went up, a Pharisee and the other, a tax collector. And remember what the Pharisee said? He stood up and he started praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I haven't fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his chest. And you know what he begins to say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I think Paul is saying something very similar here. Although people can look different on the outside and on the surface can look religious. And on the surface, they could look just like a tax collector. But the reality is this. They are both expressions of self-centeredness, self-absorption. That's what sin is. And this is why Paul says, are they any better than us? Not at all. I mean, this is radical. Radical universalism in terms of every person in that room, he says, is the same. And he's saying, even to us today, this is still us. We are people who have to recognize we are under sin and we have no righteousness of our own. No righteousness of our own. Now, let me give you a couple implications here. First, if that's actually true and if what Paul is saying is really true, and if you're checking out Christianity And you're asking the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? You know, most people come in with some kind of idea and a rubric of how this usually works. And they're asking the question, what do I need to do for God? What do I need to do to fix my life? So can you just give me a list of exactly what I am to do? I mean, of things that I have to do for God. And when I achieve it, of course, it has to be with sincerity and with faith. If I do all of those things well, then God will accept me and bless me. That's generally how people approach spirituality. You know, we bring our religious works, and this is the model we often have in our head. And you have this assumption that there's some kind of life that is morally acceptable, that is required by God, and here's the bad life we have to avoid. And if I can do both of those, you know what? I should be saved. But you know, this passage here is actually saying everyone is under sin. No one is righteous. No one does good, not one. And you know what that means? That rubric that I just described does not work and cannot work. Because all have turned aside. No one does good, not one. Everyone is spiritually lost. Spiritually speaking, we're all in the same place and no one has it all together. And this means that becoming a Christian isn't about behavioral modification. Of course, when God comes into our lives, change happens. But don't confuse that change with how you actually connect to God in the first place. Why? Because people who live good lives and bad lives, however you want to describe both of those, The scriptures are saying, here's the reality, everyone is lost. 
Let that sit with you for a second. The second implication is this. Let's just say you have embraced Christianity and you say, well, I am a Christian. Do you actually recognize the radical nature of this statement? That are we Jews any better off? Or you can put in there, are we religious people any better off? And it's no, not at all. And this should lead to this incredible humility in those who are connected to the gospel. Because your sense of superiority toward other people begins to fade. Because you begin to see, this is talking about us, this is talking about me. There is no one righteous, no one seeks for God, we are all under judgment. And if that's true, then we begin to treat each other differently. You know what I'm saying? You you grow in compassion, patience, forgiveness, respect for those around you because you realize you're no better off. I mean, we are people that you begin to see, hey, there are all these people out there that maybe I don't really enjoy as much, you know? Uh, Maybe they disagree with me on my politics. Maybe they disagree with me on what it means to live a satisfied and full life. And yet, here it is saying, it doesn't matter because we all share one thing together. We are all under sin and the judgment of God. And you know, when you're a religious person or you think you're good, this is a very offensive statement. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, in his Pensees, he says this, Nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine of sin. Yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. He's saying, you know what? This offends us. But we can't understand ourselves Unless we deal with this doctrine of sin. And think of everyone you potentially look down on. Whether it's again a political group. Maybe a racial or ethnic group. A religious group. Some group you just want to cancel. The person you want to dismiss. You want nothing to do with. And now this doctrine. If you believe it. You begin to see them differently. Because you, you're realizing this, this is us. We're all in the same boat. We need the same thing. There is something about the universality of sin that begins to humanize people. You know, years ago, I had a guy uh, in our congregation who worked for a federal law enforcement agency. I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to identify what it is, okay? But I thought this was so cool. Usually you get business people and engineers. And I was like, I have a guy in the church who's carrying a gun. (laughs) This is kind of cool. And I feel safe now. He's my friend. Um, But the interesting thing was, as I talked to him, he could never tell me about what he's working on. I mean, it was really strictly confidential. So he would be out catching the bad guys. During the day and in the evening, he may be leading our community group. So time to time, we get together. And I remember having breakfast with him one morning and asking, you know, 
how does what you see and experience, like at work, impact you as a Christian? And he said, you know, I see a lot of horrible things. I meet a lot of terrible people. Literally people who enslave other people, organized criminal activity, selling people into sex work. That's the kind of stuff he was working on. And he said, you know, when I look at these people, I have to remind myself of what the Bible says. There is no one righteous, not one, including me. Because seeing these people as sinners too, and seeing himself as that, allows him to keep his humanity and treat even criminals with dignity and hope. Because if God had broken into his life and dealt with his self-righteousness and pride, why is it not possible that God could be at work in the lives of these people? Because if he didn't have that, he went on to share that he would feel so superior to the criminals he is around. You know, treat them as other. But the gospel begins to rehumanize them. And in some sense, he kept saying, I'm no better. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, but you're not enslaving people, okay? I think you are. And he's saying, yes, I understand the degrees to this. But on the other hand, he was saying, you know what? The doctrine of sin does something. Man, it makes me humble. And it makes me have compassion. And it makes me have a heart, even for these people, to say, Lord, would you do something here? I mean, this is the radical trajectory of understanding the doctrine of sin as a universal universal thing, you begin to see this is us. And there's no room for pride, for arrogance, but humility and humanity begins to enter into relationship. That's the first thing. Secondly, we also learn here, not only that sin is universal, but we see the trajectory of sin. Because you may be hearing this and you'll be like, wait, What do you mean no one seeks for God? Look at everyone in here. Aren't we all doing that? You know, there's an awful lot of people in one sense seeking God here. Okay. How about no one does good? Not even one. Okay. If that's the case, Iron, why are we doing serve SV, right? You know, does no one really do good? But what is the Bible actually saying here? Look, if you look carefully, Paul is giving us an understanding and a definition of sin that goes pretty deep. He's saying sin is relational. It's one in which the relationship between us and God is twisted in a way where sin moves us away from God and towards ourselves. It turns inward. Look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Aside from who? From God. You go back to verse 11. The word seek. No one seeks for God. Well, if you're not seeking for God, what are you seeking for? Ourselves. There's an orientation and a trajectory here that Paul is talking about, which leads to sin. There's a lot more going on than trying to figure out what are the lists of things we have to avoid and the things we have to do here. But we're being told here, sin is saying, I want to get away from God. I don't want to go toward him. I want to move away. I want to hide. I want to be able to be left alone and live the life I want to live. I don't want him to tell me what to do. 
I want to be my own savior, my own Lord. And part of the way we can actually do that is actually by saying, you know what? Did I do enough for you, God? Did I pray enough? Did I do enough that I can keep you at arm's length? Because that is one of the ways we begin to avoid God. We try to tell him, look, I am bringing you all my religiosity, and we talked about this last week, into this spiritual vending machine and saying, God, I've done all this. Now you owe me. You have to bless me. You have to save me. You have to answer my prayer. And you're trying to get control over him. Because at the end of the day, then, you're not really seeking God. What are you doing? You're seeking things from God. But you're not really seeking God. You're seeking yourself. The other way to live apart from him is to say, you know what? God, I'm not giving you a second thought. I'll do me. I'll take care of myself. I don't want to hear about your laws. I don't want to know anything about it. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And the passage is saying both of those ways are a trajectory of sin away from God. Of course, we all pray to God here, especially at church. No one's saying, God, we don't want your forgiveness. We don't want your prayers uh, answered. We're not saying those things. When Paul is saying no one seeks God, all of our serving, all of our doing good is really for ourselves. It's a way for us to control him. We have an angle, and that's our trajectory. And that's what Paul is addressing here. You know, some of you have heard my story at Intro to Grace last week. Um, and I'll share a little bit of it with you here. I became a Christian when I was probably in fourth grade, about age eight or nine at the time. And by the time I got to middle school, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I had a couple of years where my life was utterly disrupted. I missed so much school that I almost had to repeat seventh grade, but I went to the principal's office. I cried my ears out. I begged my way out of that. It actually worked, you know? <laughs> and um, I, didn't want, I didn't want the indignity of having to go through another year with a younger class, you know? So they, they let me in. And I remember in that season as a pretty young Christian trying to understand why would God let this happen? Why doesn't he answer my prayers for healing? Why do I have to miss so much school, time with my friends, deal with treatment that was so hard? You know, and I had a lot of extra time on my hands, so I read the Bible a lot. And I'm trying to understand. And something started to click as I read, reading story after story in the Bible. You know what I realized? All these people in the Bible, man, their lives were really hard, you know? They, a lot of bad stuff happened to them. And then, oh my goodness, poor Job. You know, you read chapter one and you're thinking, my goodness, how can all this happen to this guy? And it started to dawn on me. Following God doesn't mean he will give me everything I want in life, you know? But he does promise something. That he's going to be with me in the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah, I started to be okay with God not necessarily giving me what I want as long as I have him. Because I knew things would be okay then. Um, Because he's a God who understands suffering. He's a God who loves. I'm going to keep praying for healing. But it would be okay if he didn't answer those prayers the way I wanted 
as long as I had him. I just wanted him. Not just what he could give me. And that was like the first time I started understanding a little better about what Christianity was. And it was such a season of comfort. You know, going back to these verses here in uh, verses 10 to 18, notice these are seven Old Testament passages. One from Ecclesiastes, five from the Psalms, and then one from Isaiah. And they're strung together kind of like pearls to show us the orientation of our hearts again. It is away from God, deliberately using images of different body parts. Did you notice this? Their throat is an open grave. A tongue that's used to deceive. Lips spreading poison like snakes. Mouth full of curses and bitterness. Their feet running to violence instead of peace. And their eyes are looking in the wrong direction away from God. What is this all saying? There's every part of us is oriented away from God himself. And Paul is saying that's the case with all of us. Nobody, unless the Holy Spirit comes in and changes our heart, really begins to serve God for God. We're always wanting things from him for our benefit so that he can add value to our lives. So we can feel good and say, God, you owe me. And this is why Paul says, no one seeks for God. No one does good. Now, if that's the case, what is the solution? And in the remaining time, I want us to think about things. this for a second. Because there are two things in this passage, I think, that are key. That are part of the solution here. The first thing is in verse 19. And let me read it for us. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Notice that. The law speaks to those who are under the law. That's us. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Notice that. So the law speaks so that what? Every mouth may be stopped. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Remember, this is the end of the argument from Romans 1, 16 and following, where Paul has said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For it is the righteousness of God which is revealed. And David's going to get into all, all the stuff about the righteousness of God next week. But listen to what this verse is saying, verse 19. We don't have righteousness So if the law is speaking to us and saying, you are under sin, you know what we're supposed to do? Our mouth is supposed to be stopped. Because we have no righteousness to speak of. We have nothing we can say. You know, it's like, uh, it's like you're sitting in a courtroom and the case is overwhelmingly against you. And to the point where you have nothing To say, your mouth has been stopped. There's no more excuses. There's no more of saying, yes, but God, I will do this and that. I'm going to do this better next time. And so you keep talking. And you keep saying, yes, I agree, but. And the passage is saying, there are no more buts. You know, there's a bag full of shh. Shh. No more. And our mouths are shut. And we stop talking. 
And we're silent because we have nothing to offer. That's like part one. Rather than another attempt at self-justification, self-salvation, self-sufficiency, all we do is sit there and say, I have nothing to say, God. It's the end of myself. I have nothing I can do to save myself. And as you begin to go into this space of saying, God, I need you. That's when part two begins to kick in. Because the other thing that's happening here is you see in verse 18, the problem with the sinner, that's all of us, by the way, this is us. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Fear of God is important here. You know, in the Bible, this is a really crucial concept. How often does it say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? It says this in Job. It says this in the Psalms. It says this in Proverbs. And the question is, what does this mean? Because the fear of the Lord is way more than just being afraid or scared of the Lord God. It's more than that. Because you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Listen to what this says. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God... To walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So wait a second. So to fear God, okay, is also to love him with all your heart and your soul. It's a lot more than being afraid or scared. See? You're going to love God. How about Psalm 130 verse 4? But with you there is forgiveness That you may be feared. Wait, so, but because you've forgiven me, I should fear you, oh God. What does that mean? The fear of the Lord is something that increases when you see and experience God's salvation. His grace, his goodness, his love. And you know what that, what begins to happen? You are full of joy, awe, wonder. And you find yourself humbled before God. And you have nothing to say other than to praise be God. You're compassionate. You are so good. I don't deserve this. This is the fear of the Lord. Because we begin to see the greatness of his salvation and his mercy. And you know what, it, what begins to happen? And things stop becoming about us. But it starts to be all about him. And we begin to see, man, God, you're, you're amazing. You're a God who actually first loved us. I didn't love you. I couldn't go look for you. But you came looking for us. You know, I didn't share this story in the first uh, service, but let me share it here. You know, in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea... By the way, notoriously difficult book to interpret. But in the first three chapters, there's a little bit of a narrative there that says, you know, God comes to Hosea and he says, you know, you see this woman, her name is Gomer, and I want you to marry her. So Hosea marries her. And it's not long after this, he begins to realize she's incredibly unfaithful to him. She's just cheating on him. 
And as she begins to have children, God tells them to name the children certain names. And the third one, he says, name this child not my people, not my child. She continues to treat on him. She's a serial adulterer. Eventually, she leaves him. She leaves him, let's say, with the kids. She takes off to be with another guy. And this guy was such a bad person, he decides to sell her into slavery. And God comes to Hosea and he says, you know what? I want you to go and I want you to purchase her freedom. And then I want you to take her back as your wife. Also, you understand what it's like to be me. And here's Gomer. You just imagine he's there bidding for his wife at this auction. And he purchases her freedom for 15 shekels of silver and some barley. And he brings her home to be his wife. I mean, it's a beautiful story. But here's the point. God is trying to say, if you think that was hard, here's what I do as God. You may not be seeking me. You're always wayward. But I'm a God who comes to seek you. I'm a God who is going to reach into my pocket to get out the money to purchase your freedom. But I do this by sending my son to the cross. And there he has to suffer and die. He's going to pay for the penalty of sin. The judgment of God that we talked about. God looks at that sin and says, someone has to pay for it. And Jesus says, I will be stripped naked. I am going to go to the cross so that my people can be covered with a robe of righteousness and can come home. You see, this salvation of God, of him seeking us, finding us, coming to us at infinite cost to himself. I mean, when you begin to understand that, that's joyful, holy fear. And when that begins to get inside you, you begin to understand the reality of, you know what, what the Bible says about me? This is me. This is true. This is true. And yet, God is the one who says, if you're willing to humble yourself and come to me, you will experience the power of the gospel and the righteousness I bring. I mean, that is the invitation. What a glorious thing. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that your mercies are far greater than our sins and our brokenness. And out of your incredible love for us, you send your son so that we would experience new life in you. You have ransomed us by his blood. And Father, this morning we come to you giving you praise and thanks for that. We ask that that truth would settle into our hearts and our bones this week in such a way that we would rejoice, that we would fear you, that we would honor you, that we would walk with you. And we ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.